Hey everyone. How many times have your friends recommended a vitamin or a treatment or some natural health awesomeness that changed their life? Probably a lot. Blue Hive Health was designed to take that friendship to the next level. On this podcast, Giovanna and Stephanie will spend time debunking myths and introducing you to the latest in health and wellness treatments, all to support you and your family. Welcome to the Blue Hive HealthCast. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Blue Hive HealthCast. I'm Giovanna, one of your co-hosts. I'm flying solo today, and I'm here with a professional sleep coach. And you might be wondering, what is that and why would I need that? Well, sleep is one of our most neglected factors for health and well-being. In fact, many of us still apply the whole, you know, sleep when you're dead kind of concept to overworking and overplaying and just overdoing in general. We tend to really neglect and not really give it its due credit when it comes to sleep and how important your sleep hygiene, your sleep schedule, and how much sleep you're getting, the quality of sleep you're getting is to your overall mental well-being, your physical well-being, in fact, your hormonal well-being, it really plays such a huge role. So today we welcome on Teresa. She's a registered clinical sleep educator and the founder of Sleep Better NYC. Her sleep coaching program helps clients achieve realistic goals depending on their individual sleep situation. She's worked with hundreds of sleep clinicians who have treated thousands of patients over the years, and she's realized that there's a tremendous need for sleep health education. Sleep Better NYC was born for sleep coaching and care coordination. She's based in Brooklyn, New York, but she's here with us today, and she works with clients all over the country and the world. And she's an expert in sleep apnea, sleep hygiene, and mindset. I'm so happy to welcome her to the show today. I know you guys are going to benefit from this conversation, whether or not you think you have an issue with sleep or not. I think it's going to be great. Let's dive in. Hey, Teresa, welcome to the Blue Hive HealthCast. I am very excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. I said to you before we started recording, little bit of um, you know personal reasons why I'm excited for you to be on the show. I was recently diagnosed with uh, mild to moderate sleep apnea, um, according to my partner. I've started snoring more lately. So you know when you reached out to us, I was like, this is a great topic because I know I'm not alone, and I know our co-founders, uh, Stephanie, who's also my co-host, who can't be with us today. She's also has some sleep stuff. So we were really excited to bring this to our audience because again, we know we're not alone and a lot of people aren't getting quality sleep. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You know, that is so typical what you just said there too. It, you know, when you're sleeping, you might not realize what's going on, but so often we hear about these partners who are really the uh, incentive to go and see a doctor That's to right. get help. Whether you're a man or a woman, you know, we have this stereotype of a overweight, snoring husband, but it really can be anybody. It really can. And that's what we're learning. So you have this amazing, interesting uh, company called, you're the founder of Sleep Better NYC and you're a coach. Like you actually help people sleep better. So can you, you know, for our audience listening, explain a little bit what a sleep coach does? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually have a background, um, a little bit more clinical background. I am boarded as a clinical sleep educator. Um, the credential is actually a certification in clinical sleep health, which is 
sort of a mouthful. Um, yeah. And that's through the board that credentials sleep techs and people who run the testing and things like that, although that is not my job. Um, I started realizing, you know, I was helping, I was working with physicians and dentists who have treated thousands of patients. And I started realizing that a lot of these patients weren't even going to see a doctor until they were so completely miserable and their focus was affected and their jobs were affected and their family was affected. And so every time I mentioned that I was in sleep, everybody wanted to talk about it. It was just like it was just a normal everyday thing that, that people just weren't getting enough information on before they had to see a doctor. So I wanted to sort of help bridge that gap and make it more mainstream. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't think about sleep. I mean, you know, as a functional medicine practitioner, you know, when someone tells me they're exhausted when they wake up in the morning, even myself, you know, of course I'm looking at, you know, how's the quality of sleep, but really I'm going to things like, you know, let's check your thyroid function and, you know, um, how are your hormones? And like, maybe you need some magnesium or melatonin, but it's like, you take it even that step further, which is what is the actual like physical quality of sleep that you're getting. And I think, you know, even in functional medicine, um, we miss that. And we try to diagnose people with other, you know, fatigue syndromes or symptoms and try and put the pieces together without actually looking at the obvious, which is how are you sleeping? That's true. And it's almost too obvious. Everybody lays right? down at night and hopefully <laughs> we sleep and we just sort of forget that sleep can literally affect every single bodily function. And so maybe it's not the cause of, you know, some of the other things they might be diagnosed with, but it can certainly exacerbate almost any condition that you have. Absolutely. And I'm noticing that with myself. So how do you work with people? So do they, they, they come with you and uh, to you and say, okay, I've already been diagnosed with you know, some sort of sleep disorder or apnea, and then you start working together? Or how is it that um, you actually get in there and start helping people? It's sort of a mix, actually. So when I started Sleep Better NYC about a year ago, I, I really wanted to talk to people who were, you know, not the typical snoring old man, you know, the people who wanted to sleep better for their fitness or their weight loss. But more and more, I started talking to people who have already been diagnosed, who are under the care of a doctor, who just had more questions, who maybe they were diagnosed with sleep apnea, for example, and they got their treatment option, but they didn't really understand what it even meant or what was happening in their body or how to optimize the treatment that they were getting. Um, Some people are on certain prescriptions. And again, I am not a doctor, so I don't prescribe anything like that, but they just had no idea how that was interacting with their sleep. And so I sort of can see both kinds of people as clients, although more and more I am seeing people who have already been diagnosed with something and they just want a little extra support and more of the mindset and just to optimize what they're already doing with their doctor. Yeah. And that's really interesting. So for myself, I was just recently diagnosed with mild to moderate sleep apnea. Apparently I'm still getting, um, you know, good quality sleep, like in terms of like a bunch of hours. Uh, And for people listening, the way that I was diagnosed is I went to a sleep clinic. I had to stay overnight. I was hooked up with all kinds of ridiculous wires. Um, I joked at the end, I don't know why they call it a sleep clinic. They should call it an awake clinic because it's so (laughs) uncomfortable. I couldn't sleep the whole night. Um, but needless to say, um, 
even with that discomfort uh, and my apnea, you know, apparently I get like six hours of like, you know, sleep, um, but there's still some mild to moderate apnea. And of course the um, the conventional sort of um, prescription for that is a CPAP machine um, and this orthodontal sort of insert for my mouth, potentially. There's all the kinds of these different things. And I, I remember my first thought thinking like, oh my God, like I feel like an old person that has sleep apnea and now I have to sleep with this machine on my face. And, you know, what is it that you help people with? Like, how is it that you would help me, for example, coming in to see you um, with, with something like that? So again, because you have been diagnosed, it does make it a little bit easier to have the direction on where to go with that. So if you were prescribed this CPAP and you were using it, I would pretty much just <laughs> tell you to keep using it and really more encourage the use and explaining why you need to use it and what happens to your body when you don't use it. Now, especially with CPAP, you know, I have to mention that it is by far the most effective treatment available, but about 50% of people stop using it after six months and about 17% of people are the only ones using it after several years. So there are certainly some drawbacks to this. And then that is something I can work through with the client as well, either helping them to explore other options or to connect them with a sleep dentist in the area if that's something they want to look into. Or again, you know, if they are using their CPAP, maybe just work on other things like mindset. You know, some people have this claustrophobia issue with their CPAP, or some people, now that they're treating the obstruction and the airway issues, they realize that they also have, you know, some anxiety and some acute insomnia that they want to work through. So we can work through really uh, more of like a holistic all around view of their sleep. So what you mentioned something really interesting there, like of not understanding, you know, what's happening to their body and what the sleep, the, you know, the CPAP machine is doing. Like if you can break that down for us, for the audience, like when you have sleep apnea um, or even other different kinds of sleep disorders, right? But let's talk about apnea here in this sense. What is actually happening to the physical body? Sure. So when you have sleep apnea, apnea literally means lack of air. So your airway is restricting or completely closing. Now that happens over and over and over again, every minute or hour. If you have, let's say you have mild sleep apnea, that number, that AHI, that measurement of your apnea might be pretty low, you know, comparatively, let's just say it's five. Let's say five is your number. That still means that five times every single hour of every single night, your airway is closing which means you're not getting enough oxygen, which of course affects every organ in your body. And so sometimes when people have OSA, even when they are in bed for eight full hours, they might wake up exhausted because they're not, they're not getting the oxygen they need, but their body is also constantly in this fight or flight mode and waking up and breathing. And are you sleeping or are you breathing? Because you actually cannot sleep and breathe at the same time if you have OSA. Is there a certain amount of times that, um, let's say it's normal to stop breathing in your sleep? Because we are in an altered state of consciousness. Is there a certain amount of times where let's say it's like 
not considered apnea, but it's normal that we, we stop breathing. And then sort of if that increases, it's considered apnea, or is it just, you always should have an open airway at all times. Like, I know that sounds like a silly question, but I had the doctor explain this to me and I, I think it's valuable for the audience. Yeah, no, definitely not a silly question, especially because our body, you know, at some points during sleep, like during REM, deeper REM sleep, your body is technically paralyzed. And so, yeah, your muscles do get a little bit more lax, which also can restrict your airway a little bit. A little bit of restriction is somewhat normal, especially if you're on your back. If people are snoring, they tend to snore more on their back. Um, If people are drinking, I personally only snore when I'm drinking or I'm sick. You know, of of course, that's not great for you, but it it doesn't mean that you have a life-threatening condition as long as it's not all the time. Now, given the demographics and our society and a lot of people are overweight now, it is more common to just have more pressure on your throat and your airway. And so a lot of people might have mild sleep apnea. They may or may not be treated. Obviously, that's a conversation for your doctor. But once that airway gets restricted more often, it it really is a problem, no matter how mild or severe the condition is. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. And I, I think about you know when you said your body um, being in a constant sort of fight or flight response, really unconsciously. And I think about you know what the side effects of that are, you know, like, you know, increased stress hormones, like cortisol, increased belly fat and inability to lose weight, um, inflammation, like there's so many other repercussions to that, that I don't think people, um, realize they, they just think, oh, it's sleep. Right. And, you know, uh, when we're young, we take sleep for granted, right. It's just like, ah, whatever, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Right. It's like, go, 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 just keep going. Right. We, we take it for granted, but actually restorative sleep is, is so, so important. So beyond working with people in terms of, like you said, with, you know, potential claustrophobia, that's, that's one of my issues. I'll be honest, like, um, that, and it's so not sexy to go to bed with this big thing on your face. Um, (laughs) yeah, I hear that a lot, (laughs) right. It's like, just, that's so not sexy, but it's, you know, if you need it, you need it. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's, like you said, there's people that have concerns about, you know, keeping this long-term and, um, you know, what the effect is going to be on them. I know that, you know, there was concerns about like the machine and off-gassing and products and all that stuff. What about if someone can't use the sleep app for like, let's say you cannot help them through the claustrophobia and kind of the anxiety. You mentioned like a dentist, like what are the other options for people that are listening who are, you know, they're thinking, wow, I I do wake up tired all the time. And my doctor says my thyroid is fine. So it's not my thyroid. And we've ruled out all these things. Like what else can be done to help support people with better sleep? That is maybe not a CPAP machine. If that's something that they can't access. I think that's so important to ask and also just consider as well. CPAP, again, is very effective. It's the most commonly prescribed prescription, excuse me, for this disorder. But again, it's it's really difficult for a lot of people to stay on it. And so some people just, they never even know there are other options. And so they don't, they just kind of give up. They don't go back to the doctor. They do a WebMD search and they just give up, which you know, then they just kind of suffer through their sleep apnea for who knows how long. But there are other options and there are really effective options as well that are almost as good, if not just as good as a CPAP, including an oral appliance or oral appliance therapy, um, it's called. Now, again, of course, this has to be prescribed by a doctor and it would 
depend on your anatomy and your disorder, but a lot of people actually prefer oral appliance and it is a very effective way to treat sleep apnea. Um, it basically looks like a, it looks like a retainer. It's custom made and fitted by a dentist who is qualified in sleep. So although only a dentist can do this, not all dentists are trained in sleep. So you have to find one that has some experience. So it's a custom fitted retainer and it goes in your mouth and it just holds your jaw open just a few millimeters. And just that small movement actually keeps your airway open. So where the CPAP physically blows air into your body, the oral appliance actually just holds your airway open so that you can more naturally breathe and get that oxygen. Yeah. And that's, I have to say personally, that was a relief for me. Um, I actually didn't understand. I, I knew that apnea was um, obviously a lack of air. Um, and I actually didn't understand, I guess, the physiology of it until I really decided I needed to look into it for myself. And it's it is like you mentioned earlier, like a laxity of your, like, is it, I guess it would be your, your esophageal muscles. Is that what it is? Do they just kind of collapse on and block the airway? Yep. Mm -hmm. And when people who have bigger necks or a little bit more fat in that area, it's basically just gravity when you're sleeping, that's restricting that area. Yeah. And the cool thing about that too, what you just said is like, I actually, I don't have the apnea neck. Like I was told that my neck is, is, is quite slender. I mean, of all things on my body, my neck, my neck is maintaining its oh, baseline, goodness. right? <laughs> um, and yet, still, like I have this issue, and um, I was also told that it could be age related as well. So, what I find interesting about that appliance is that I think a lot of people have a misconception that snoring or apnea is coming from their nose, right? And there's all these contraptions to hold your nose open and all this stuff. Um, but it's actually much more serious, right? It's a, literally your throat's closing while you're sleeping. Yes, 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 yes. You are so right. And I'm so happy that you mentioned that. You know, a lot of people, they go to CVS or QVC or whatever it is, and they get nasal strips and sprays. And, and I do actually recommend some of that to clients, but it's usually in conjunction with something else. You know, if your airway is congested because you're sick, yes, of course, those things are going to help you breathe. But you're right. It's not just in the nose, it's in your throat. And even people who have a really big tongue or they still have their tonsils, these people are much more likely to have sleep apnea because it's just more in the back of their throat to block their throat. That's so interesting. I still have my tonsils. And I know that sometimes that is one of the, you know, prescribed things is to get your tonsils and your adenoids checked out. And if they're too big to, you know, potentially have them removed. Right. Um, that's so interesting. Yeah. So, okay. Talk to us about, um, you know, this, you mentioned this appliance and it basically, what does it do? Does it hold, does it adjust your jaw? Like, how does it hold, how does it hold my throat open, Teresa? <laughs> How's this going to work for me? Yeah. Cause so they're expensive, the throat, right? They're really expensive. They are, but most of them are covered by medical insurance, which is also a, a misconception. And I think it keeps a lot of people from getting it or even asking about it because you know, of course, over time, things have really changed and improved. And in the past, they were uncomfortable and bulky. And it was like a hockey puck in your mouth. And it wasn't covered by insurance. And, you know, obviously, nobody wants that. But now, you know, there are much better materials, there are better manufacturers, they're covered by insurances, even Medicare covers these devices. Um, you know, of course, it, our healthcare system is so complicated, it, it depends on someone's deductible and their plan. But most totally. plans do have some coverage for this. 
Yeah. And I would venture to say, cause we're, we're here in Canada and I would venture to say that most of our extended healthcare plans also cover this. I've, I've looked into it myself. Um, so yeah. And it, and cause they can be pricing. So that's good for people to know. So mm-hmm. let's just talk about aside from the, you know, the machines and the contraptions and all of that, let's talk about, um, just sleep hygiene in general, like when should we be getting to sleep? How many hours of sleep should we be getting? Um, how do we set up our environment to sleep better? Right. Cause a lot of us, like <laughs> my partner included, you know, have devices in front of their face right till the last second. So talk to us a little bit about that and how to improve our quality of sleep. Absolutely. And this too, sometimes the most obvious things are just not what we're doing. Cause it's not where we're used to. Right. I mean, the devices, you can look up any generic article anywhere on the internet, and you know that you really shouldn't be using your device right up to the moment you go to bed. Now, if we're going to be realistic, we have to understand that people are not always going to follow their rule, those rules. So, you know, at least at Sleep Better NYC, we like to sort of meet people where they are. Let's say that you are just always on your phone. You just don't think that you can put that down until you go to bed. Okay, that's fine. But maybe you also will consider blue light glasses or a screen over your phone to block that blue light. Or maybe you say, okay, just 20 minutes before bed, I'll put my phone down. Little things can really, really make a huge difference. And in doing that, let's just say you say, okay, 20 minutes before bed, I'm going to put my phone down. I'm going to do everything else I need before bed. That everything else, that routine is also super important for sleep and really overlooked. You know, we, when we're our kids are growing up. We, we do these routines and these bedtime things with them and we put them to bed in the same order and we get their pajamas on and we brush our teeth and we wash our face and you say our prayers and whatever it is that you do, you always do it in the same order. And whether you realize it or not, you're creating habits with them in the same way that adults need to create habits. We need to make our minds realize that, okay, once I put my phone down and then I brush my teeth and I wash my face immediately after that sleep happens. And it's, it's a subconscious thing, these habits that are forming, and it helps you to relax and it helps to alleviate some anxiety sometimes around sleep. Yeah, great points, especially, I mean, I know some of us cannot help the the machines, like the devices. And it's funny because like, I'll, I'll tell my partner all the time and he's like, well, does it affect me? Like, you know, I, I put out the, you know, I turn off the tablet and I'm fine. And, you know, it's like a lot of people have that, like, no, it doesn't affect me. So uh, can you explain to us actually, for, for those of you listening who are saying exactly those words, right? Like, no, it doesn't affect me and it's fine. And I just turn it off and I go right to sleep. Like, it is there an effect, even if you don't think it is, even if you're getting to sleep right away, let's say, how is that light affecting you and potentially disturbing your sleep? It, it is. <laughs> the, the it is. People, it just is. is. It is. <laughs> um, and the same thing goes with caffeine. So I'll, I'll sort of bounce back and forth. So if you can sleep right away after you turn off your phone or computer or TV, that's great. Of course, I'm not saying that you cannot do that. And you're probably falling into a natural sleep in that that's good for you, especially if you have, you know, you're very comfortable in your bed and your sleep habits. The thing is, whether you feel it or you think it or not, your melatonin production is decreased by blue light. So melatonin, for anybody who doesn't know, although you've probably heard of it, um, melatonin helps you to sleep in a way that it, it basically triggers your brain to start these chemical processes to put you to sleep. Now, if you take melatonin, it's not a sedative. It's not going to knock you out. It basically tells your brain, okay, it's time to start feeling sleepy. So if you can fall asleep right after using these blue light devices, 
you know, that's totally possible. Although your brain is a little bit delayed in these sleep hormones that it's being released. Now, if you have trouble falling asleep, it could be because the melatonin is not up to production yet. It's not ready to go to bed. If you are sleeping already, you know, that melatonin sort of has to start building up once you're already asleep. And so while you're sleeping, you might not be getting into the deepest of sleep when you really should be. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I read something really interesting recently as well, because one of the other things that my partner will do from time to time, I'm like totally throwing him under the bus here. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Um, <laughs> he, he produces this podcast as well. But what he'll do sometimes, if I don't remind him, is he'll leave his notifications on. And so, you know, I sleep with earplugs on because the slightest thing will wake me up, right? So that's fine. But he's like, oh no, it doesn't bother me. And I read something really interesting lately that um, even if you think that the notifications on in the background are not interrupting your sleep, there is actually a split attention at certain stages of sleep, whereby that is kind of waking you up. So it's taking you out of restful sleep for a moment and then plunging you down. And I wonder if you have any experience with that, or if you know, like, if that's true. Yes, definitely. You know, the sleeping brain is very, very sensitive and like you said, maybe he is asleep. Let's say he's in a deep stage three sleep with those notifications going off. You know, his brain is, again, they have this habit to know, okay, when that notification goes off, I have to check my phone. Even though he is sleeping, maybe he goes from a deep sleep to light sleep. And suddenly there, there are different things that go on in your body in deep sleep and light sleep. And he might be bouncing back and forth. Exactly. Light especially is such an impact on our sleep. I mean, I recommend literally even turning off digital clocks, putting your phone face down, blackout lights or blackout shades, excuse me, in your bedroom, because light is one of the main things that triggers our brain to be awake. And if you're sleeping again, your brain is very, very sensitive, whether you know it or not, you're right. It's, it's very subconscious. Totally. And since we're talking about melatonin and I'm a functional medicine practitioner by trade, I, I need to address that. Like, I think it's up to 70% of your melatonin is created in your gut. So for those of you that have chronic gut issues, uh, IBS or Crohn's colitis, and you're noticing that your sleep is effective, there, there is, there's a correlation there. And so, you know, you might have to take some, you know, exogenous or, you know, uh, supplemental uh, melatonin, which is what I actually have to do because I've been tested and I'm deficient in melatonin. Um, so just also putting that out there for people that are listening, cause that's, that's super important as well is that, you know, we can't compartmentalize the body. Everything works together. Um, the other thing, Teresa, though, you mentioned is caffeine, which is really, uh, something that I also hear a lot of people say, whether it's my clients or family, it's like, oh, I'm fine. I'll drink a coffee and go like right to sleep. And I always remind them, I say, well, you know, caffeine has a half-life of, I think about six hours, which means six hours after you've had a cup of coffee, you still have half of the amount of caffeine circulating in your body. And again, the rebuttal is, oh, but I'm fine. Everything's fine. I can, I can sleep no problem. Now that stopped happening for me after I think the age of 30, 35, <laughs> like I can't have caffeine after 2 PM. Cause otherwise that's it. My sleep is disrupted, but can you explain for those people that are listening that are going, oh, whatever, pish posh, it's, I can have a coffee. I can have an espresso and go straight to sleep. What's mm -hmm. happening though? Yes, I do hear that all the time and it absolutely kills me. You know, the same thing with these blue lights. Yes, of course you might be able to fall asleep, especially if you have a pretty high tolerance for caffeine. If you do it all the time, 
you know, after dinner, it's very common to be offered espresso and coffee and tea. But even if you sleep, you're not getting into the sleep stages that you need to be. You might not be getting into a deeper level of sleep. So, you know, caffeine actually blocks something called adenosine. And adenosine builds up in our bodies every hour that we're awake, making us sleepier and sleepier, which is why caffeine keeps us awake because it's blocking that. Now, if you're able to go to sleep, then that's great. But those levels in your brain of adenosine and other hormones are not where they should be when you're typically sleeping. So in the middle of the night, when this caffeine wears off, let's call it four to six hours, depending on your weight and your tolerance. At that point, your body sort of has to start all over with the sleep cycle and get into that normal, natural sleep. Yeah, it's so important. And I just keep, I just keep thinking, you know, like the moral of the story is just because you're passed out and you're horizontal on your bed doesn't mean you're getting good quality, restful sleep, that there's so much involved in like, you know, sleep hygiene um, mm -hmm. that we need to take into consideration. So this is so valuable, I think, Teresa, to have this conversation for people. Even if you don't have apnea, I also want to say that I know we, we focus a lot on apnea at the beginning of the show, but even if you don't actually have sleep apnea, if you are not getting good quality sleep for whatever reason, so we just mentioned caffeine and then we mentioned um uh, the lights, right? Having devices on or the TV on and then, you know, going to bed. Uh, another one is alcohol and sugar. Uh, we should probably get into talking about that and how that disrupts your sleep. But all of these things like are super important um, to getting good quality rest. Otherwise, again, we risk having our body in this constant fight or flight, which PS in this day and age, um, we have enough waking hours where we're in fight or flight. We don't need to also be in fight or flight in our sleeping hours, <laughs> right? Oh my gosh, that is so true. We need any less anxiety in our lives would be helpful, I think. Yeah, let's talk about sugar and alcohol. Like I know, especially because, um, you know, I work with um, men and women, but mostly I do a lot of hormonal work with women who are, you know, perimenopausal or menopausal. And a lot of the complaints are, and even with men, is the disrupted sleep. Like I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't fall back to sleep, right? And it's always usually around like, you know, three-ish, four o'clock in the morning-ish. Mm -hmm. I wake up and I can't fall asleep. And my first thing is, you know, what did you have for dinner? Did you have any alcohol? And what was your sugar intake? So can you go into that a little bit and how alcohol and sugars in general can disrupt our sleep? Yeah, and that's a really great question to ask about when they go to bed. You know, people typically know that if you have a really heavy meal, maybe you'll feel sleepy, but it's probably a little uncomfortable. But we have to remember that when we're sleeping, our whole body just doesn't stop working. In, in fact, our brains are actually working much harder in deep and REM sleep than when we're even awake. And our body is still digesting and, and doing everything it needs to do to keep us alive and healthy. So when you sleep, these interactions are still going on. And so if you drink alcohol, your body is still processing that. And similar to the idea with caffeine and that, well, opposite of caffeine, alcohol makes you feel sleepy or makes people feel sleepy. They, they think that a lot of people might have alcohol as a nightcap to help them sleep. Um, alcohol actually inhibits REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, which is really the most restorative phase of sleep. Again, maybe you pass out drunk and it's only 9 p.m. and you sleep until eight the next day. It feels like, oh, wow, I got so much sleep. Thank goodness I drank last night. But 
I mean, first of all, you probably don't feel great, but also those first few hours of sleep were not good at all. They were not restorative. You're probably just in light sleep. Maybe you had to get up three or four times to use the bathroom. There are so many things that alcohol can affect while you're sleeping, even if you feel like it helps you fall asleep. It's really that quality afterwards that messes you up. Yeah. And just to add to that as well, again, from a functional medicine perspective, especially, I mean, we could tolerate a lot of things when we're younger, right? As soon as you hit over 40, things change. Um, And from a functional medicine perspective, if you're having, you know, let's say a a huge dessert after dinner, or you're eating after seven o'clock, or you're having alcohol with your last meal, and you get that huge surge of blood sugar spike, by the time you are in mid sleep, and you get that, you know, always when there's a blood sugar spike, there's always a drop, right? When your blood sugar gets so low, your body actually triggers you to wake up because it's, it's wanting you to raise your blood sugar back up and eat. And there's all kinds of interactions that happen with like, you know, cortisol and, and, you know, cortisol elevating elevates insulin and all of these different things. So especially if you're over 40 and you're, um, you know, hormonal at all, even if you're a man, like there's so many different ways that sugar and alcohol, you know, really affect your sleep. And, and so, you know, you don't want to be waking up in the middle of the night to, to pee, even though we've normalized that, like, oh yeah, that's happening. And for the men listening that are a little older, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times when, you know, prostate's involved and stuff like that, we're waking up more. So there's so many different ways that you can, you know, take supplements and, um, you know, address these things so that again, you're having this really good quality restorative sleep. So yeah, I wanted to add that. Um, Teresa, you know, this question I get a lot and actually my, I think it was my stepdaughter just a few months ago that said to me, you know, I don't, I don't dream. Like, is that okay? Is that okay that I don't have dreams? And my response to her was, you probably are dreaming, but you're not remembering it. Um, PS, if you're not remembering your dreams, you have probably a B6 deficiency. So have a B complex, um, but not before bed, <laughs> but before bre- with breakfast. Um, but, um, what, what do you say to that, to people that are maybe concerned with the fact that they don't remember their dreams or they're not having dreams or how important are dreams and dreaming to the quality of our sleep or are they at all? Uh, not to be vague, but it can kind of be a little bit of both. Um, dreaming mostly occurs during the REM cycle of sleep, rapid eye movement. It's a deeper stage of sleep, but they can occur in other stages as well. If you remember your dream, it's typically because you woke up during your dream because otherwise in this REM sleep, you sort of have amnesia. Um, you, your body is totally paralyzed. You have these, a lot of brain function. You have crazy dreams and our brain has this great thing where it just wipes it all clean by the time you wake up. Unless of course you are waking up during that cycle. So if you, REM is a lot more frequent towards the end of our sleep cycle. So the early, early morning or right before you wake up. Um, sometimes if your alarm goes off right during the cycle, of course, you're going to remember your dream. But again, you can experience dreams in other parts of sleep as well, which would be much more common and totally normal and healthy to remember. Now, if you never think you're dreaming, if you never remember anything, that is certainly a little bit unusual. Um, it, it could be a sign that you are not getting into deeper stages of sleep, which may indicate uh, a sleep disorder or just you know some generalized anxiety or most commonly sleep apnea. Um, so Interesting. You know, it's okay if you don't remember your dreams all the time, if you don't have tons of dreams, because again, your brain is probably just wiping it clean, 
but if you if you're past that where you just feel like you have never or it's been like a really long time then you might want to evaluate other parts of your life to see if you have something else going on that is super interesting like literally almost using that as like a a diagnostic tool if you're never ever dreaming or remembering your dreams cuz um and that's interesting just listening to you say that because i am a very avid uh, dreamer and uh, a lucid dreamer. So I have a lot of lucid oh, dreams. Wow. Yeah, very spontaneous. Um, I thought everybody slept like I slept until I worked with someone and they're like, no, that's not, that's not, that's not the average. Um, <laughs> nope. And so I don't know if that means I spend more time in REM sleep. I have no idea what that means, but I have noticed that in the last year and a half, where, um, you know, I've put on some pandemic pounds, right? My partner has started to say, hey, you're snoring. Um, and then I went as far as to get a sleep study. I have noticed that in this past year and a half, I am not dreaming the same way. I'm having no, no lucid dreams. And um, I don't, I have dreams and I do remember them from time to time, but it's not the way it was before where literally like I used to joke that like Steven Spielberg should be in my head because like the movies and oh the, my goodness. it was insane. Like I just, it was amazing. It was, it was a fun ride every night. Right. But um, that's not happening to me anymore since I've, you know, this last year and a half and recently, like I said, been diagnosed. So that's very interesting. I can totally attest to that. Yeah. I mean, it could certainly be a good sign. Of course, you know, some people like to lucid dream or they plan it out. I don't have experience with that, but yeah, when that changes, it it could be a sign that you are improving your sleep health. And, um, you know, when we are asleep, the amygdala in our brain is super active. And for anyone who doesn't know, the amygdala is very emotional and very uh, primitive even. So that's why somebody's dreams are just so crazy sometimes because our logical part of our brain is not working, but our emotional part is just having a blast. So some of these crazy dreams, you know, whether you believe they mean anything or not, it's really our brain, like working things out for us and trying to test things out and help us, um, just deal with certain emotions during the day. So dreaming can be beneficial in, in that sense, but you know, the kinds of dreams that you're having and the intensity and the frequency you're right in using it sort of, I don't, I don't know if I would say diagnostic, but sort of as like a baseline or to, to understand Mm. when they are changing, to understand like if things are improving. Yeah. I love that. Great. Well, Teresa, this has been amazing and super informative. Why don't you share with our audience where they can find you and your company and um, how they can get in touch with you if they want to, um, you know, dig deeper into this and perhaps maybe even work together. I know that you offer uh, group sessions uh, and webinars, et cetera. So maybe give us a little bit of where we can find you and, and what you have going on. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. So on social media, you can find me on Instagram. It's just at sleepbetternyc, no spaces or dots or underscores. My website is sleepbetter.nyc. So it's not .com, it's .nyc. Um, and in a week or so, I will also be on a website called Vital Exchange, which is actually um, a special needs community, but I'll be there as a sleep expert for parents, um, helping those very hardworking, sleep-deprived parents with some tips and tricks, as well as just some basic information for their kids as well. And that is called Vital Exchange. Love that. Thank you. And just to reiterate, the website was uh, sleepbetter.nyc, correct? 
Yes. Perfect. Thank great. You. Yeah. We just had a little hiccup there. So yeah. Perfect. Teresa, it was great having you. Um, I personally found this very informative. I know there's so many options out there, not only for people that have some sleep disorders, but even just for people who want to get better quality sleep. I mean, again, we take it for granted. We don't realize that we need to be putting a lot of attention and focus here. So I super appreciate everything you brought to the show. Thanks for reaching out on behalf of myself and my co-host, Stephanie. Um, and thanks for being here on the Blue Hive Healthcast. I think this was great. Me too. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be a part of this and I will look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks for listening to the Blue Hive HealthCast. Did you get an insight from this episode or learn something new? Consider sharing it with a friend. If you love the show, we'd appreciate it if you subscribed via iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows and give us a rate and review. Visit us at bluehivehealth.com for more information on our programs and services.